Pinterest is a visual feed of ideas, products, clothing, and recipes. Millions of users browse Pinterest to find images and text that are tailored to their interests. Like most companies, Pinterest started with a large monolithic application that served all requests. As Pinterest's engineering resources expanded, some of the architecture was broken up into microservices and dockerized, which made the system easier to reason about. To serve users with better feeds, Pinterest built a machine learning pipeline using Kafka, Spark, and Presto. User events are generated from the front end, logged onto Kafka, and aggregated to build machine learning models. These models are deployed into Docker containers, much like the production microservices are. Kinnery Jangla is a senior software engineer at Pinterest, and she joins the show to talk about her experiences at the company, breaking up the monolith, architecting a machine learning pipeline, and deploying those models into production. Kinnery is also writing a book on the topic, and she's going to be speaking at Strata Data Conference in San Jose, March 5th through 8th. I'm also going to be there, just walking around, hanging out, and seeing talks. So if you're going to be attending the Strata Data Conference, let me know. You can also get a 20% discount on a ticket by entering the code PCSED. And with that, let's get to this episode of Software Engineering Daily. Kennery Jungla is a senior software engineer at Pinterest. Kennery, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Yes, it's great to have you. We're going to talk about the machine learning infrastructure more so than the machine learning algorithms themselves in this conversation today. So in order to get us into the right frame of mind to talk about these data pipelines that are deployed at Pinterest, let's give people a feeling for what Pinterest is. Can you just explain the product and the sources of data that are going into the data pipeline? Okay, sure. Yeah. So Pinterest. So Pinterest is a visual discovery engine, right? And by that, what I mean is that Pinterest helps people find or explore new ideas, for example, cooking dinner, trying a new outfit, redecorating a home, anything that inspires you to do things that you love. So it's basically an online pin board for collecting these visual multimedia and also known as images. And, you know, since the last... I don't know, eight years, ever since images has started, people have been saving and labeling their ideas. They save these pins and classify them into collections that they would like to go back to in the future. So that gives us a lot of insights on not only their interests, but also what's upcoming. So that's definitely one source of data. Now, another source of data for us is the user actions on these pins. So depending upon what the user likes, what the user clicks, what the user repins, right? Those are a lot of different user actions that we could use to basically get information about what the user wants and in turn create a more personalized feed for the user. Mm -hmm. This is the same thing that is true with Netflix or with Facebook, where you have a feed of options available to you. And based off of the ones that you choose, you will have better feed content available to you in the future. And 
I believe that the feed generation process is key to a lot of these different companies. It's key to their success because it's essentially you need to provide the most engaging, the best content that you can, and otherwise the users aren't going to be as interested in the product. They're not going to ultimately stick around as much. So go through the evolution of the feed a little bit. So the home feed, when Pinterest first got started, what was the most basic implementation that Pinterest had when the home feed first got started? Sure. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what exactly the home feed is, because I understand a lot of people are not usually aware of that. So the home feed is basically the landing page where users first get to when you try to refresh Pinterest or which is your home page, which shows the feed that Pinterest generates for you. So going into a little bit of the history, six years ago, or even before that, 2012 and before, right? What Pinterest did is they had a chronological feed of pins depending upon the users you follow and the boards you follow, right? So that's that's pretty straightforward. You basically get content from whatever the user follows, whoever the user follows, etc. So that's good for a small community, which is oriented around the same interests and even demographics, if you may. However, though, it's hard to explore content. It's hard to explore interests. For instance, you know, understanding that if this user likes baking, there is a potential that this user might also like ice cream making, for instance, right? So that didn't happen in 2012. So we were not really adapting to the user behavior. Now, in 2013, we launched recommendations that Pinterest picks for you. So these were called picked for you recommendations, right? This is basically based on your existing repins, you know, whatever you like, you save, you save it to your board, the collections that you make. So those are the recommendations that happened in 2013. In 2014, it evolved slightly more. We introduced something called the concept of a smart feed, because after you give user recommendations, how do you understand what is more important to the user? Because the first two to three pages of your feed are prime real estate, right? So so relevance came to the picture. And so we focused on ordering the feed based on relevance to you. In 2015, we added more to this. We added, you know, we took more user actions into consideration by taking click-through rate, uh, repins, that improving relevance, adding localization to it, adding more machine learning-based models, tree-based regression models to this, so on and so forth. And in 2016, we started reacting. We became more reactive to this, right? So whatever, if the user didn't like something or the user liked something more, we started predicting what the user would like, which also helped the user understand a lot about their own selves. You know, now we're just doing more and more of that. I've seen a couple high-level approaches to how you do recommendations. So Pinterest, building the feed, you're essentially building a recommendation engine. Here are a bunch of links and pins that you, the user, may be interested in. We are recommending them to you. Do you like them? And the the two ways that, from a high level, that I've seen of generating recommendations are collaborative filtering and content-based recommendations. So the content-based recommendations might be you have clicked on 10 links about baking in the past, and so we're going to give you some more links about baking. That would be the content-based thing. The collaborative filtering-based thing is... You click on 10 links, and there's another set of people who have also clicked on those same 10 links. Those people have also clicked on an 11th link. So 
Pinterest would decide to deliver you that 11th link as well. Is there an approach that you take, either collaborative filtering or content-based recommendations, or is it just a mishmash of, of different approaches? Yes, exactly. It's the latter. It's basically... So there's also something that we predict, right? If you have in the past liked something that we've recommended for you that the users you follow have liked, then we're going to show you more of that. There's a higher probability that you're bound to repin something if you've repinned what people you follow have liked in the past. So yeah, we definitely take history into account, you know, and and it, we kind of mix it up. And, you know, we try to decide whether the content that we recommended to you is more important to you than the collaborative recommendations that we're giving to you. Now, even if it was something as simple as a basic collaborative filtering system or a basic content-based recommendation system, the scale at which Pinterest is at in terms of its number of users would make this a complex problem, even if the machine learning algorithms themselves were simple. And that's why we're going to spend most of the conversation today talking about how you wrangle that data, how you deploy new ways of dealing with that data. So I think in the earliest days, Pinterest was a monolithic system. It was just a big, I believe, a Rails monolith. Maybe you could talk about the early deployment of the Pinterest application itself, kind of before it really had a lot of machine learning and modularity associated with it, and give a description for how it's evolved since then and how different services have sprung up around the monolith. Sure. Cool. So in the beginning, obviously, there's a big, huge monolithic service. I didn't work at Pinterest at the time, so I can be very specific about how things went. But, you know, just understanding a little bit of the history of how that happened, we did break that down into a lot of different microservices. But at the time, so I think when, when we talk about microservices, you're talking about independence. And when, you, when, when that doesn't, when your services are not divided into independent modules, it kind of becomes this one giant deployment process where your scalability is basically not really divided into, you don't understand what exactly do you need to scale because you have to scale the whole service, takes you know more resources, you don't understand. There's a higher likelihood that the whole service will crash together. So with the evolution of Pinterest, we basically divided that into different services for our ML algorithms, our ad systems, our search, all of them are different services now. So different components, different verticals of Pinterest are now different services. And what that basically did, it made everything very independent. We have different service owners for all these services. You know, deployment units are very small, smaller rather. The release of one service does not block due to any unfinished work in another service. So it's basically continuous delivery that's become much easier. Scalability has become much easier because, you know, you get to scale the services that are bottlenecks only. Technology stacks are very independent. There's no long-term commitment to a specific stack. So it's become a lot more modular, you can use multi-framework applications, so on and so forth. Now with that, you know, whenever you talk about microservices for a fast-paced company like Pinterest, a mid-sized company like Pinterest, where you don't really want to depend upon, but there are so many moving pieces rather, microservices makes things much easier. However, though, you're going to deal with problems of a distributed system. Right, like a lot of lot more effort, a lot more deployment cycles, a lot more monitoring. You're dependent upon maintaining life cycles of a lot more services. There's increased config management, 
a lot more delivery pipelines. Microservices also communicate over a certain network. So basically, there's a higher likelihood that something will go wrong compared to a programmatic API call. You're thinking about performance hits due to HTTP overhead migration to different services gets very tricky. So there's a lot of pros and cons that came along with dividing this monolith into microservices. However, though, like I mentioned, for a company like Pinterest, which is super fast-based, and you know we want to make sure that modules are pretty independent, people are not dependent on each other, code is not dependent on each other a lot, You know, microservices have become really handy. So a user navigates to their homepage, and there might be a hundred different services that get called in order to assemble the elements of their home feed. Maybe you have you've got one service that's collecting images, one service that's serving ads. You've got a bunch of different services interacting with one another. And also, once the user has landed on the page and the user is interacting with various elements, they're clicking on stuff, they're commenting on stuff, data needs to make its way from the user's browser to the services that are recording the information about the user's interaction. They need to make their way to those backend services. They need to make their way into the data pipeline at Pinterest so that that data can be analyzed and used to build better recommendations in the future for that user. So, now that we've talked through the deployment process and the kind of the microservices architecture, tell me a little bit about how data that is generated from user interactions with Pinterest, how does that make its way into a data pipeline? Sure. So at Pinterest, we the way we ingest data, we have two data pipelines. We have an hourly data pipeline and we have a daily data pipeline. So it's basically hourly is a streaming process and daily is a batch process. And both these pipelines, they persist online data through Kafka and Spark. So we use Kafka for, it's basically a buffer. So it's a sub-buffer at Pinterest where we have topics and these topics retain for two days. After that, they get deleted. And so Kafka serves as a buffer between our online and offline data systems, after which we have clients which read off of these Kafka topics and persist these logs and sequence files in S3, which our streaming and batch jobs basically pick up and ultimately store these events in an HDFS cluster. So, you know, for example, one of the examples of our hourly data reporting pipeline in the ads team at, at Pinterest is powered by Spark. And so once we have all this data, we basically use something like Presto for data exploration and analysis. And, and we ultimately, all the user analytics data is ultimately stored using a combination of Hive and Spark, but it's all, it's all a huge HDFS lake. Okay, so it's HDFS and the S3 stuff. You said there's a period of time where the events get stored into S3. Is that just temporary? Does it eventually get thrown away? It's temporary in the sense of it's temporary for months, for a few months. Yes, it eventually gets thrown away. But, you know, like I said, recommendations, you want to store the data for two to three months at least. And what about the Kafka data? What's the expiration date? When do you garbage collect events that are sitting in Kafka? Every two days. So our retention policy is of two days. And all records get deleted after that. So if I'm a user, I go to Pinterest, I'm clicking around, I'm making comments and stuff. Those events are going to hit, they're going to be propagated to a backend service. The, the backend service is going to write 
those events to Kafka. Could you zoom in a little bit on that process? Like, do you have different services that are recording different events, or do you have a single service that kind of records all of user sessions? And, you know, how is that partitioned in Kafka? Give me a description for that process. Sure. So we have different services that, that basically ingest this data, different data also. Like, you know, user, for instance, user analytics is taken by a different service. Then we have everything. So every, all the data about a certain user, right? That's taken by a diff, ingested by a different service. All the actions that a user takes, that's ingested by a different service. And then, for instance, the ads platform, all the advertiser data is ingested by a different service. And what we have is we have jobs. We have different jobs that ingest this data and write to different Kafka topics. Also, you know, we have different clusters for these different services where all this data gets stored. And then ultimately, like I mentioned, these Kafka topics. Different Kafka clusters? Different Kafka clusters, exactly. And we have these different Kafka topics where this data is written to. And ultimately, our different jobs run, uh, consume data from these Kafka topics and ultimately write to S3. What would be, like, how many different Kafka clusters do you have? You have one for the ads team, one for the feed team or how does that work i actually don't don't know the answer to that question because i'm not very involved with that okay part, but uh but yeah i'm pretty sure that you know we have different services that write to different Kafka clusters interesting you have some standardization around the ways that events are written just like regardless of what Kafka cluster you're using or do you have a standardized event schema throughout the company or Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. How do you design an event schema for, you know, and, and evangelize it within the company and get, or does it matter? Like, do the events just vary from team to team? And, and if a team owns a specific type of event, they get to design their, their own schema and it doesn't really matter what the other team's schemas are. Yeah. And, you know, that's exactly, you know, also one of the problems, right? Different teams design their own schemas. I think that, you know, every team is supposed to be also involving stakeholders. But then again, you know, if, if you think about the future, it's very hard to tell sometimes two years later, another service might want to use your data as well, right? So in that sense, it kind of becomes interesting. And that's why it's one of the problems at Pinterest is also accessibility of data, right? Where these older legacy storage methods don't really help you retrieve data very quickly. Do you have a schema registry system? Mm, not that I know of. I mean, I'm sure, but okay. I don't know about it. Okay. All right. That's fine. So just to poke around on this a little bit further. So when somebody clicks on a pin, for example, and it makes a call to a backend service that the user has clicked on a pin, does it fire you know, a response to that click? And then whoever wrote that service is also responsible for logging an event for Kafka to be analyzed in the future? Or is there also an operational element to the Kafka cluster? Like, Is it also like when somebody clicks on a pin, you're logging an event to Kafka and some operational database is going to need to read from that cluster and for example, update a search index or update something in the billing team, you know, something that's different than analytics. Oh, it's definitely used for operational data as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of our recommendations come from the data, right? Right. Well, I would think of that as more of, as analytics as opposed to, let's say, updating a search index. Like if you were updating a search index, that would be, well, I guess that you could consider that analytics as well. Anyway, so... You mentioned Spark and Presto. Give me a little bit more of an understanding for how events are pulled off of Kafka and processed for other purposes, like 
I think, for example, Spark, you know, you're you're probably aggregating events off of Kafka and then doing things with those events. Could you talk about that? Sure. So like I mentioned to you earlier, we have two kind of pipelines, right? We have daily and an hourly pipeline. Both these different jobs take data from Kafka differently. There is the stream processing jobs basically are more real-time computations, which take smallish windows of real-time data from Kafka. And obviously it's all asynchronous. And basically that develops hourly data reporting pipeline. The daily pipeline that we have, it's more batch processing. It computes big and complex data. And it basically takes the data off the entire day over. And if you want some examples of that, like I mentioned to you earlier as well, in our ads team at Pinterest, we have an hourly data reporting pipeline, which is powered by Spark. And we kind of like Spark because, you know, it provides us the SQL API, which is good for the ETL jobs, et cetera. So not sure if that answers your question. Okay. Yeah. I mean, could you go a little bit deeper in terms of why Spark is a useful tool for for that, because I think people use a variety of streaming frameworks to essentially process large volumes of data for exactly this purpose, where you've got a bunch of events that have been queued up. Let's say you've got a bunch of um, events about users clicking on ads, and they're queued up in Kafka in this pub subsystem. And you maybe you have a streaming job that is going to grab all of those events and process which users click on which ads for the purposes of reporting. Why is Spark a good tool for that? And and how does Spark work? How does Spark process those, let's say, 100 or 1,000 events? I'm honestly not a Spark expert. <laughs> I just know that we use Spark at Pinterest. And I, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Spark expert at all. And as I understand why we use Spark is that the fact that it's pretty flexible, it gives us the APIs we need for our extract, transform, load jobs. It also allows us to code in a low-level RDD code if we want, you know, resilient distributed data set if we need the flexibility. So that's as much as I know about why we use Spark, but probably somebody from the serving systems team might be able to tell you more on that. Totally fair. I should be asking you more about deployments um, because I think that's that's really what you're uh, an expert in is is basically the infrastructure and deployment aspect of this. So we've been talking about a lot of different pieces of infrastructure, like the services, the Kafka pipeline, the Spark system, Presto. What is involved in getting these services deployed and keeping the uptime and reliability? there and setting up a continuous delivery? Sure, sure. Right. So that's a great question. So like I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we divided our entire monolith into a bunch of microservices. And the way it works at Pinterest is that each service has its own service owner. And then we have an SRE owner, which is dedicated to a team which owns these services. And each service has its own release method. However, though, they all run off of Teletron. And Teletron is an in-house tool. It's the Pinterest deployment system, which we've turned to open source. So basically, the process of, you know, the release process, the deployment process is basically, you know, you make your change, you commit it, you push it, uh, you know, you land it even. And then there's a test job and a build job that, that goes off. And if both of them pass, 
the build gets pushed to, a, there's another job that publishes this build to Teletron. And there's another, yet another job, which basically takes this build and uploads it to S3. And now when it's on Teletron, different services have their own deploy processes, right? Different services can also use the same build that was just ready. And then some services also auto-deploy whenever the next build is uh, up. Most of the services deploy to a canary host. That's essentially for testing that everything looks great. They monitor it for 20 minutes or they're supposed to monitor it for 20 minutes before they move to production. And obviously the whole monitoring production step is there as well. Now, back in the day when all the services were... So, you know, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how we migrated to Docker as well, how our deployments and move to Docker, Docker-based as well. Right. So, so, you know, back in the day when we did not have these services on Docker, there was a big possibility that, you know, you deploy a certain build on a certain host and it was possible that the environment would persist even after you deploy another build over it, right? That would totally mess things up, break things, et cetera. So with Docker, what has happened is that Docker becomes the new environment. And so in that, it serves as a stabilization tool. That's one thing, right? You know, the the builds that you host, that you the builds that you deploy on hosts don't mess up with the environment because Docker becomes that. That's one thing. The other thing that Docker has helped us do is that we have these bunch of Jenkins jobs that run scripts and which consume a lot of space because of all the temp files, right? And, you know, that ends up making the host super slow and so on and so forth. And so with Docker, we, we got rid of that as well because, you know, once your job's done, you shut this down and all your changes are boom, gone. So, so in that sense, you know, the, our deployment process have become much more stable when we've introduced Docker at Pinterest. So I believe that the way that the services communicate with each other is via Thrift. Is that accurate? So Thrift is a serialization protocol. Why did you choose Thrift? Oh, I, I love Thrift. I mean, you know, to begin with, first off, I think the fact that it has much less overhead because it uses binary format compared to SOAP, for instance, that's a great win. I think it's very clean. I'm not a big fan of XMLs. So Thrift really is a super clean library. It also generates both the client and server code, including the data structures you pass. All you end up dealing with is handlers. So that's great. You know, you have persistent connections. So you're not dealing with TCP, HTTP handshakes. Yeah, so, you know, for all those reasons, I think I think it's a great cross-language serialization tool. So part of this discussion is about the fact that you have migrated this, well, you have taken part in the migration. You maybe you aren't there for the whole, for the entire thing, but gone from Pinterest being really monolithic and not very smart, not having a whole lot of machine learning, to a system where there's, you know, it's been dockerized, you've got microservices, and you also have this data pipeline. And my understanding is that this is a very gradual process. It's not a big bang process, and that there is an importance in how you strategize about this and how you create like short-term goals as well as long-term goals in order to gradually get the entire service, uh, so the entire company rowing in the same direction. Do you have any suggestions around the management of that process? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So this is the way I look at, this is the way, so you, this also, you know, reminds me of how would you migrate legacy systems as well, right? So when it comes to migration, I think about it in two ways. One is the classic, you lift and you shift it, right? You just directly move it. 
And the other one is a refactoring. You refactor the entire architecture. Now, when you follow the first path where you're basically just lifting and shifting, there are a lot of automation softwares that you could use for image migration or data migration or whatever. However, though, I do think that when you refactor or when you gradually migrate, it's a great time to think about a lot of optimizations around scalability, for instance, great time to think about efficiency and a fantastic time to think about data. You know, how your data is accessed, how your data is utilized. Are you using block storage? Should you be moving to object storage service, for instance, right? So I think it's, you know, when you're thinking about any kind of migration, whether it's gradual or not, I think it's a great time to think about all the kind of optimizations that you've always wanted to make that looked tedious to you. It's basically like moving a home, right? You trash all the bad stuff you don't use. You know, you get new furniture. You think about making your house more functional. So I think that's a great analogy when you're thinking about migrating systems. And you did talk about data access being a big issue at Pinterest. And the way I've seen data access as a problem manifest in, in other companies is you have different teams that are generating events or other forms of data that are being thrown into a data lake. And you have analysts throughout the company, as well as machine learning model builders. So you have analysts that are perhaps doing exploratory analyses of different parts of the system. And you have machine learning engineers that are productionizing the realizations of those analysts. Those may be the same person in some cases. You may have a machine learning person who does exploratory analysis and then turns that into a model. But in any case, it's important to have this data readily available and in a form that's easy to pull from. There are some tools like Looker, for example, that have been, entire companies have been started around this problem of data access. Can you talk a little bit about how data teams at Pinterest are organized and what are the tools that they're using and what are the the processes that they're using to explore data and then productionize those? Definitely, definitely. Sure. So at Pinterest, we have a centralized data team, right? And under that, we have three kinds of teams. There's a data engineering team, there's a data science team, and there's a product analytics team. Now, under the data engineering team, that's the team that deals with everything data, right? Everything Kafka, everything streaming. So under the data eng team, we further have a big data platform team, which deals with supporting Kafka, streaming, in-house Hadoop jobs, maintaining it, scaling the clusters, building tools that allow other teams to query uh, big data platforms. Then we have another team under the data engineering team that is the data analytics team, which basically is responsible for building all internal facing data tools, for building the experimentation framework, for building, there's a tool called Pinalytics, which is basically analytics for experiments. So uh, also building a, a suite of internal tool for queries, our ETL workflows, and so on and so forth. And then there's another team, which is the ML platform team, which basically builds a centralized machine learning platform that, that's basically used across the company. And then we have this smaller team called human computation team, which is, which is all about human judgment and all the mechanical turks, etc., so that's our data eng team. Then we have the product analytics team, which is basically all the data analysts, which are mapped to specific product teams. Uh, these guys help help engineers and the product managers understand the opportunity size. They analyze the data in the form of running SQL queries and so on and so forth. And then we have the third team, which is a data science team. Now, the data science team is less about operations. It's more about thinking about the high-level problem domain, 
uh, defining the problem domain. It has a more of a research component to it. And it's way bigger in scope. And, you know, it has a broader range of tools. So these guys have a lot more software engineering, software engineering skills than analytics. However, though, you know, I think the good part is that every team knows who, which data analysts you're, you're going to work with, which data scientists you're going to work with. And data engineering team is basically across the company. So anything related to uh, data engineering, you know which team to go to. So I, would, I wouldn't think it's that big a problem, honestly. Okay, so now uh, let me go a little bit into what kind of work do the data scientists at Pinterest do, right? So they do a lot of exploratory uh, experimental analysis, mostly build and train models with a fixed objective, right? So there are three types of projects that, that data scientists at Pinterest do. One is the very traditional kind of work where they build predictive models, which are, which are usually smaller in scale. Their internal models, not very user-facing because they don't have uh, an entire engineering team to support. And so, but however, they experiment around optimizing uh, certain features and, you know, for instance, predicting how likely are certain keywords to be useful to the team, for example. Then there are these other set of projects which are more towards research and analyses where you're defining, you're defining new uh, concepts. You're defining, for instance, variety on the feed. You're defining how do you measure it. You're defining statistical properties. You're trying to provide as much product information as you can. You're trying to understand if it's more how computationally feasible that's going to be, right? You're also trying to observe whether a certain thing is going to affect retention, for instance. And if it's not, then really, do you really care about working on it? So on and so forth. They also design and run a bunch of experiments. And then there's a third team, which does more of internally driven work. Nobody asks them to do it, but it's really important. For instance, anomaly detection, right? For instance, you see a week-to-week drop of 2% on a certain metric. So you're really deciding, should you freak out about this? How much do you take this seriously? Is it alarming or not? So on and so forth. So so that is what data scientists Pinterest do. Now, I did want to also touch a third question that I don't know if you asked or not, but I do want to go into that is that data access at Pinterest is a huge problem, right? We have a lot of data, which is a great problem to have. However, what data to trust becomes a big problem. I think legacy storage methods have not really proven to be very optimal. And so tools like Presto, Right, uh, that comes very handy. That that helps us faster. That helps us to query data a lot faster than than this huge data lake takes a long time to query anyway. So Presto kind of comes very handy there. So, are you referring to HDFS as the legacy storage technique? Yes, exactly. Okay, right. And Presto does what? Yeah, it just helps you query the data a lot faster, right? Like to explore the data. Uh, okay. Yeah. How do you look at the overall process of the different teams working together and figure out places where you can improve the feedback loop? Because, for example, I, I hear this this problem a lot that getting models updated quickly and, and the testing process for models and the deployment process for models can be sometimes hard to do. Have there been any improvements that you've made over time that would be worthwhile to share? Sure. There's one thing that I really want to talk about because I've worked on it. So one of the things is that, you know, being an ML engineer, it becomes you want to be able to experiment quickly. And so uh, that in turn ties into how do you run your experiment on your local machine 
and uh, you know try to see whether you're going to get the results from a certain model or not, from a certain experiment or not. And uh, that kind of, you know, that's a challenge, or at least that was a challenge when I joined Pinterest, where debugging was very tedious, because for any ML, any part of uh, code that, that does any kind of ML, you're basically, you know, you have 100 dependencies, you have these simulated databases that you want to run, you know, one microservice depends upon the other. And in order to get this whole piece working, everything behind it has to work very smoothly. And so getting all these services on your dev app or your local machine and having them up and running in order to test your model becomes extremely challenging. And so, you know, this is also where I ended up using Docker, where I've put all these services, each service has its own Docker environment. And all you end up doing is use Docker Compose, you know, run all these services together. And there's this list of services. You only run the ones that you want. You know, you can you have these services which run simulated databases as well. So debugging became a lot more easier and hence experimentation became a lot more quicker. Because now, you know, you instead of actually going to the experiment dashboard, creating an experiment, waiting for two weeks to look at the data, uh, and then in turn, you know, going and modifying your features and whatnot. Now you can basically do all that on your dev app and you know, it's a lot more faster the pace you get feedback very quickly i imagine that makes onboarding a lot easier too yes definitely so you are writing a book about this exact topic that we've been discussing building and deploying machine learning deployments what are some of the elements of the book that we have not discussed in our conversation yet you know my inspiration for writing this book was that when i was onboarding when i was ramping up on docker or when i was ramping up on how to use docker for um, helping my team debug things a lot quicker there was no place where I could find anything that was structured in a way that I could go from basics to semi-advanced to advanced topics. And I think that's where, you know, I got inspired to write this book where given the fact that I do think debugging using Docker is extremely interesting. However, what exactly is Docker? And, you know, why are we using Docker given other alternatives? Why does it exist? What are the use cases? What are the different use cases that enterprises can use Docker for? So that's the start of the book. And after that, you know, I also intend to write about basics of Docker. What does Docker compose? How do you shut down a container? How do you debug when you're using a container inside a container? And then how do you club these microservices and then go ahead and debug. So that's go ahead and debug your entire app. And so that's how my book is going to be structured. And I'm looking forward to a lot of feedback from people to understand whether, you know, it provides a structure that I was looking for when I was ramping up on Docker. So this is more about the service deployment system rather than the, well, I guess even if you're talking about machine learning deployments, your machine learning models are going to sit in a Docker container, right? Exactly. And at Pinterest, are you looking at Kubernetes at all? Yes, we do have a cluster right now. We're in the experimentation phase. Uh, We're not using it in production, but we do have a Kubernetes cluster for testing. Cool. Well, what are you focused on now at Pinterest? What are the big initiatives around machine learning and Docker and deployments? Sure. So as far as ML goes, you know, so far, Pinterest is you has been using um, machine learning to the discovery team uses it to provide recommendations related contents predict the likelihood that a person will pin content we definitely want to keep doing all this right we want to just get better at it improve our relevance we have another team called the visual discovery team which is a lot into deep learning algorithms. They do object recognition, uh, et cetera. So we want to improve on that as well. We want to monetize our ad performance, our relevance prediction using ML as well. 
Our growth team uses uh, ML to uh, build intelligent models to determine which emails to send and prevent churn. So that's something we want to continue doing better. However, though, I think that one of our major goals around ML in 2018 is to improve our spam detection and our fraud detection. And I think that's something that we're really looking forward to accomplish in, in this year using machine learning. That problem is so hard. Whatever company you are, it seems like it's a never-ending battle. Definitely. Well, Kennery Jongla, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really good understanding the pipelines and the machine learning deployments, the microservices deployments at Pinterest. Thanks, Jeffy, for having me. I had fun. Wow. 